life now. It's like, oh, you know, see. Anyway. If you have Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18. Uh, last week we got back to John's Gospel, and I covered one verse. I covered verse 1 in, in John's Gospel. John doesn't really go into great detail in the whole account of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, verse 1, it mentions them going to the garden. Verse 2 goes right into the arrest. And so uh, what I did last week is we kind of filled in some of the details of the account from Matthew and Luke's Gospels, of exactly what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, in John 18, we'll pick up at verse 2 and see what transpires um, after the garden. So I'm going to start at verse 1 just for the sake of context, and uh, we'll look at the First 14 verses. Okay, John 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. That's where verse 1 ends. That's, that's all it tells us about the Garden of Gethsemane. That's all we covered last week. Verse 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said... I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it was good, that it would be good if one man died for the people. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth, for the power, the authority that's in your word. Lord, I pray, use me today to speak your word to your people in a way that's life-giving to them. Okay, so here we have the account of Jesus' arrest. And I want to look at it in three parts. The first is the religious-political intrigue of verses 2 and 3, as well as verses 12 to 14. The power encounter that takes place in verses 4 through 9, and then the passion of Peter in verses 10 and 11. So let's look at that religious political intrigue to begin with. Verse 2 says, Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. I covered that last week. We kind of took a look at how often the Mount of Olives is mentioned in the Gospel accounts. And even how there is some Old Testament um, uh, prophecies concerning about Jesus' return to the Mount of Olives. Jesus had a usual place 
This was his usual place, the Mount of Olives. And this garden uh, called Gethsemane, meaning uh, olive cross. And so we see here in verse 2, this is a place Jesus would visit often. He, this is a place he took his disciples. It reminded me that when I was being mentored many years ago by a good friend uh, and pastor, his name is John Nyan, he took me under his wing. And this is what we would do. We, we lived in New York at the time, and so we would go for these long walks on the boardwalk at Jones Beach. And we would do it usually early in the morning, and we would do it in the summertime, we would do it in the spring, in the fall. We would do it in winter. We would take these long walks together, and we would talk about everything. I mean, everything. He'd answer all my questions. I had lots and lots of questions. He'd answer all of them for me. And after we had our long walk on the boardwalk at Jones Beach, we'd go to Wendy's, and we'd have lunch. This, this, this was our usual place. This was our usual routine. I, had, I remember years later, the, the tables were turned. Now I got to be the the mentor, and I had this young man named Tyler, and every other Tuesday, we'd have breakfast at Denny's. Every other, for two years, we would just have breakfast at Denny's. It's been my delight and my pleasure to do for others uh, what John so graciously did for me. I love to take people under my wing and just answer their questions and, and ramble on and on and on and talk too much like old people tend to do. You know, it's just it's a wonderful thing. I, I like having those usual routines. Jesus had a usual routine. He had a place where he took his disciples. This is where they would go and hang out. Jesus wasn't hiding. He, the scripture tells us he knows what's coming, right? And he's not hiding. He's not avoiding this. He's not trying to walk, walk away from it. He went to the place where it would be easy for Judas to find him, the usual place. Verse 3 says, so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers, some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Luke's gospel adds this to the narrative, verses 22, uh, chapter 22, verses 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, while Jesus was saying to his disciples, you know, it would have been better if you guys stayed awake and prayed. When that was what Jesus was saying. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Matthew and Mark's accounts tell us that Judas did indeed kiss Jesus. Man, what? I mean, betrayal is cold-hearted to begin with. I know. Some of you have told me, you've experienced betrayal, right? There are a few things that are as painfully devastating as the knife in the back called betrayal. But man, how cold-hearted you got to be to betray a friend, to betray Jesus with a kiss. Oh, man, I don't know how that could be anything other than brutally painful for Jesus. So that's the first two verses, that's verses 2 and 3 I want to look at today, but the rest of the political intrigue happens in verses 12 to 14. So we're going to jump down, and I'll come back to verses 4 and following. Verses 12 and 14, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So I, I imagine here the, the, the logic is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
even if I hate and despise them. Here we have the Romans and the Jews coming together against Jesus. There's a distinction made between the two groups who come together here. There are the soldiers, and then there are the Jewish officials. The soldiers are the Romans. And my research said that there could have been, Vine's expository dictionary says, there could be as many as 600 men here at this encounter. So when they say crowd, it's a big crowd. Other resources I looked at said it could have been between 500 and 1,000 men. So they, they're coming out in force to capture the Prince of Peace. So those are the soldiers. The Jewish officials are representatives from the chief priests and from the Pharisees. And as we've seen repeatedly throughout John's Gospel, there has just been an endless string of contention between Jesus and these religious officials. It's been my experience, and maybe for some of you as well, that the last move of God always attacks the next move of God. No matter how lovingly or how powerfully that next move appears. I remember a mentor of mine, a, another older gentleman. When I was first ordained, it was in a, an organization called Elam Fellowship. And, uh, and so we got ordained by them, and then Nadine and I left. That was in New York. We left New York and planted a church in West Virginia. Little did I know that the, um, I'm trying to remember what his name was, what his title was. His name was Dayton Reynolds. His title was something, something general overseer of Elam Fellowship. They have Bible college, and they had churches all over the place. They, they really grew in prominence, Elam did, during the latter rain movement. Anyway, Dayton Reynolds and his wife, Anne, uh, wonderful people. Uh, Nadine and I are in uh, planting a church in West Virginia. Phone rings one day, and it's, it's Dayton Reynolds. It's the general overseer, right? That would have been like as a vineyard pastor if John Wimber called me out of the blue. I didn't know John. Never met him. He calls the house, and both of us are like, hamana, hamana, hamana. He, uh, we find out that Ann and Dayton are, are coming to West Virginia to visit his mother. And they're going to be driving right through our town, can they stop in and spend a couple of days with us? And of course our answer was yes, we hung up the phone and we freaked out. It's like, well, this guy's like way above me. I had no reason to believe that. They, he even knew I existed. But this is what I find out later on. That he had been the leader of Elam Fellowship for many, many years and had prayed that God would send somebody from Elam to West Virginia. No one had ever gone to West Virginia from Elam until us. Nadine and I, we were the answers to his many, many years worth of prayers. And so it gave, us, um, it gave us great favor with him. So, so when Toronto broke out, when the, the Toronto blessing, when the Holy Spirit fell on Toronto like it did, I remember talking to Dayton about it. And he said to me, he said, the last time there was a move of God, he said, I questioned it. And I, and I questioned it and I questioned it until it passed me by. He says, I am not going to do it this time. He said, I made a mistake last time. And I attacked the previous move. He says, I am not going to miss this one. And so when the Spirit of God began to move with great power in Toronto, he decided from the beginning, he said, I'm going to embrace this and not resist it. He's the exception to the rule. He really was. Because historically, and it happens again and again and again, a new move of God comes, and those who had grown in prominence and made their name and built their little kingdoms on the old move, are greatly threatened by the new move. That's why they're killing Jesus. Why did Jesus get arrested? Because the, he's the new move that's being attacked by the previous move of God. Right? The, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, 
They, they have the law. That law was given by God. It was a move of God. But God was doing a new thing. And the old rises up to attack the new. Why does that happen? Fear, pride, control, ambition. You guys have never seen ambition in the church, but trust me, every once in a while, raises its ugly head. But the, but the biggest reason is that there is an abhorrent disdain for change, even if it's God himself initiating that change. Because from time to time, God does new things. Jesus is the, is the ultimate example of God showing up and doing a new thing. God never worked and moved the way he worked and moved in the life of Jesus on the planet before. That was entirely new. And some of it was so new that it was, it was diametrically opposed to what people had expected. It was completely different than the status quo. I mean, Isaiah 43, 19 says this. This is God speaking prophetically through the prophet Isaiah. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Why would God have to ask that question? Because sometimes he does new things. They spring up around us, and guess what? We don't perceive it. We just don't. I can remember, and I've, I've shared this before, it might be about a year ago, maybe longer now, I woke up on a Sunday morning, and my eyes, I'm still laying in bed, my eyes open up, and I could hear God speak to me. Not an audible voice, the heavens didn't open, right? Angels didn't appear. Just that still, small voice, strong in my heart, that I've come to recognize as him. And the Lord says to me, see, I'm, see it, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Can you not perceive it? And I remember my instant response to him was, nope. <laughs> Sorry, Lord, I don't know what you're talking about. And sometimes that's how it is. It, doesn't, it takes me a long time to kind of, to kind of get on board. What are you doing, Lord? You know, sometimes I can tell he's there. I can tell he's moving. I don't know what it is until later on. That seems to be the human condition. We don't know the mind of God. Anyway, so the religious leaders, they hate Jesus so much that they're actually willing to collaborate with their occupiers, with Rome, to have Jesus killed. They've come together with the Romans and they've bribed someone from Jesus' inner circle, Judas, to betray him. i tell you what. I've experienced this type of religious politics, this type of behavior way too many times in my life. I've seen it on huge scales and on small scales. And few things are as draining or as discouraging or as disheartening or as destructive as the politics of religion. And when I find myself in the midst of it, the words of Jesus echo in my ears. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another, oh my God, I want to lay down my weapons. I want to lay down my politics. I want to lay down my religious preferences. And in its place, I want to pick up love. I want to choose love. I want to choose love again and again and again and again and again. I've been doing this for 40 years. I want to get the love part right. I'm desperate to get the love part right. Okay, so who are Annas? And Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas are related to each other by marriage. Annas is Caiaphas's father-in-law. He's older, a more seasoned man of influence in the community. He's a religious politician of the highest order. He was a former high priest. And as we covered, oh, months ago, um, the former high priests were often advisors of the current high priest. And um, they most likely took Jesus to Annas first, 
to get his input on how best to proceed with their, with their scheme, with their plot, with their, with their plan, um, before taking him to the official high priest of the day, which was Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law, obviously, of Annas and the current high priest. And he held considerable authority in the community. So they were trying to get some input from a more seasoned religious politician before going to uh, the, the one who would have the right to make uh, authoritative decisions. Now he was also the one who, who advised them, the, the text we're looking at today, Caiaphas was the one who advised them that it would be good if one man died for the people. I gotta tell you, I've heard the counsel of Caiaphas's in churches I've passed it before, how it would be better if we got rid of this person or we got rid of that person for the sake of the church. I gotta tell you, it makes me sad. It breaks my heart. I refuse the counsel of Caiaphas. I refuse to be a Caiaphas. I'm not gonna go there. Okay, so that's the polit religious political section. Moving on. Verses four to nine, there's a power encounter that takes place. Jesus knowing that all, the text tells us, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus and Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. So this band of betrayers and conspirators come at Jesus with torches and with lanterns and with weapons, as if he's a fugitive, a fugitive on the run, as if he needed to be captured, as if their weapons would do any good against him. And here we have Jesus with a handful of friends against a small army. And I tell you what, this army is grossly overmatched. I'm reminded of David's words and Goliath about when he David's words to Goliath when he encountered him in 1 Samuel 17:45. This is what David said to Goliath. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Here in John's gospel, these men, these armed men have come to against Jesus to arrest Jesus and the powerful name of God knocks them off their feet. They ask for Jesus and Nazareth, and Jesus' response is, I am he. And they all fell to the ground. You know what? I want to make sure this is accurate. I checked 24 different uh, translations of Scripture. They all say that they fell to the ground. All 24 of them said they, he fell to the ground. I looked up in Vine's expository dictionary, the word fell here in verse 6 of John 18, and this is how they define that word. Of persons in the act of prostration, to prostrate oneself in homage and worship. Listen to me. When Jesus said, I am he, they didn't trip. It's not like they backed up and stumbled over their spear and some domino effect took place and blah, 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 all these guys fell down. They fell under the power of God. They fell under the power of his name. 
And if Vines has it right, they fell on their face before God. They fell prostrate in worship before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They fell in worship before the Word made flesh dwelling among us. I'm thinking it had to be hilarious that 600 or 1,000 men are on their face before God after they ask who, who it is they want. And Jesus asks them again, who is it you want? <laughs> Can you imagine they're trying to all get up and gather themselves again. They're like, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Reminds me of Philippians 2. 8 to 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? This is what commentator David Guzik added at this point. He said, Jesus was born as a humble baby, yet heralded by angels. He was laid in a manger, yet announced by a star. He submitted to baptism and then heard the divine voice of approval. He slept when he was exhausted, but awoke to calm the storm. Jesus wept at a grave and then called the dead to life. He submits to arresting troops, then declares his majesty and knocks them over. Jesus died on the cross, but in it, he overcame death and Satan. Powerful stuff. Now listen to me. These guys fell. Just like in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, the presence of God appeared as a bright light, and Saul, scripture says, fell to the ground and heard the voice of God. Or in Revelation 1, 17, when John hears the voice of God and turns around and sees him, and he falls to the ground as though dead when he saw him. Or in Revelation 5, verses 8, 14, 8 and 14, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, it says, they fell before the Lamb. In Revelation 11, 16, the 24 elders fell off their thrones and fell on their faces to worship God. In Revelation 19, 24, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, worshiped God, and cried out loud, Amen and Hallelujah. And here in John 18, verse 6, when Jesus says the words, I am he, they all fell to the ground. Now, you understand, there's a vast difference between falling down and bowing down. There's an entirely different, great difference between falling down and bowing down. When you bow down, you make the choice. Reluctantly or not, I don't know. But you choose to bow down. When the Spirit of God falls, as it's described here in John 18, 6 and all the other references I made, that when you fell, when you fall before the presence of God, that's involuntary. The presence of God comes, His majesty is so overwhelming that you have no choice but to fall on your face before Him. They fell on their face under the power of God. 
personal story. I'm not equating this to scripture, just my experience. You guys know that I that God sometimes speaks to me in visions, and some of them have been some of them have been amazing visions. And I can remember this one, I'll tell you two quickly. One time, there are two heavenly beings that God has assigned to me, the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. I remember being with them in one vision, and we heard the this is one of those times, and I don't say this often, I heard the audible voice of God. And he was speaking 2 Chronicles 7, 4, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And as soon as the first words came out, if my people, there was so much power, there was so much authority that all three of us, wisdom, revelation, myself, we fell to the ground. We dropped to our face. We, there was no thought given to it. There was no, hey, should I bow down and worship God right now? The power of his voice was so overwhelming that all we could do was drop to our face. And then I had... I remember another experience. I've told you stories. I have visions. And sometimes God takes me to this place I like to call the library. And it's a very warm and very welcoming place. I'm surrounded by books. It represents Jesus as the word of God. There's this beautiful fireplace. It represents the Holy Spirit. The fire is always blazing. And the Father and I get to sit in these two very comfortable chairs. And we talk. And he tells me of his great love. And that's what it's like most of the time when I sit with him. And then this one time, in the middle of our conversation, the father stood up. And when he stood up, his appearance changed. And when he was seated, he was, he was a warm and welcoming, affectionate, loving father. And I could not have felt more safe. When he stood up, it was as if the veil was removed from my eyes and I could see him in all his glory and majesty. And all I could do was fall on my face. Sometimes sometimes the presence of God shows up and we're so impacted by it. The, the great miracle is that we survived the encounter. At moments like that, I, I'm wondering, how is it that I'm not just an ink spot on the ground? The presence and the power of God is so great. Of course I would fall. I couldn't possibly stand. The fact that I continue to exist is a demonstration of his mercy and his grace. Not only do we have a good God and a loving God, we have a powerful God. So just a side note here. So these men in John 18, 6, they fell to the ground involuntarily, just like Saul on the road to Damascus, just like the angels, the elders, and the living creatures I mentioned. They weren't faking it. It wasn't in their flesh. They weren't seeking attention. I know from firsthand experience when you experience the presence and power of God, there's no choice. It just happens. They were powerfully impacted by the power of God, and their physical bodies reacted to that power. Now, much has been made in recent church history concerning physical reactions to a touch of the Holy Spirit. Much has been made in our own congregation over the last couple of years. And I remember... I told you about the story with, with Dayton Reynolds when Toronto came out. I remember back in those days, we, Nadine and I went to Toronto. We, we experienced, we had their people come. I remember hearing John Arnott speak, and we'd go, we'd go listen to him. And, and so he would address it. You know, people were shaking, and they were yelling, and they were, they were falling on the ground, and all kind of stuff was going on. And boy, people were getting upset. 
why is all this happening? You know, this is messing up my church service. And pretty messy when people are shaking and yelling and flopping on the ground, right? And so people would come to John on that, and this is what I remember him saying. He said, they would, they would tell him, oh, those people, they're just operating in the flesh. And John said to them, and I'm paraphrasing him, he says, of course there's flesh mixed in. He didn't deny it for a second. Of course there's flesh mixed in. He says, but listen, there's flesh mixed in in your church service too. And it comes from the pulpit, and it comes from the choir, and it comes from everybody else. Of course there's flesh mixed in. God's using people. We got flesh. When the Spirit of God touches us, sometimes there's flesh mixed in. But he told him, he says, I'll deal with some flesh if I can have that much of the Holy Spirit's presence of power in our meetings. I thought that was a good answer. We'll never, for prophetic people, the word of God says that we see in part. We don't see with crystal clarity. We only see in part. But I'm glad for the part that we could see. When the Holy Spirit comes with power on people, it's, that's in part too. And some, a big part of it is the presence and power of God, and, and another part of it is our flesh. There's no escaping that. So you're never going to get crystal clear, pristine revelation from any prophetic person. And when the Spirit of God falls on you in power, or falls on me in power, trust me, it's always going to have flesh. Kind of like that. I'll take that, even if there's some flesh mixed in. Because I want the presence and power of God in our midst. I want it. I absolutely want Look, how many churches do we have on PEI? And how many of them don't have the manifest presence of God active in their midst? A lot of them. Okay. There are lots of options for that. I'd like to be the alternative to that. I'd like to be the place where the Holy Spirit shows up in power, does wild and crazy things. Not because I want notoriety. I just want him. I want him and I want him to do whatever he wants to do. And I'm willing to pastor it through the part that says there's flesh mixed in. Does that make sense? I want to pastor that kind of church. A place where the Holy Spirit will touch people in power. And if it comes with flesh mixed in, then I'll do my job. As the pastor, I'll pastor the circumstances. I'll pastor the individuals. But I'll gladly take that over the absence of the Holy Spirit working in power. Been here over three years now. From the beginning, I told you, if the Holy Spirit comes... It's going to be messy. It's got to be messy. We're people. We're, we're messy people. Anything that's new in this birth is messy. That's why I said it's so important that we love one another. If love is more important than anything else, we will get through the messy portions. English writer and theologian, poet, philosopher G.K. Chesterton once said, Men talk of extravagances and frenzies that have been, been produced by mysticism. They are a mere drop in the bucket. In the main and from the beginning of time, mysticism has kept men sane. The thing that has driven them mad was logic. <laughs> I want you to know I couldn't agree more. Anyway, enough of that rabbit trail. Back to John 18. The arrest of Jesus. No one's taking Jesus' life from him. Jesus himself says in John 10 that he's laying down his life. He has the power to lay it down. He has the power to take it up. Apparently, with the mention of his name, 
Just the mention of his name. He could have easily overcome this company of our men. I mean, he could have just kept saying, I am, I am, I am. Every time they fall down, he'd walk away a little bit further. If they got up, he'd say, I am, boom, they hit the ground again. He could have just did that until, until he was out of, out of reach, right? That, obviously, he just could have kept doing that. Him and, the, him and the guys could have gone away. But instead, Jesus chooses to drink from this cup. So it's fair to say, from one perspective, Jesus wasn't actually arrested at all. He laid down his life. He surrendered his life. Because this crowd obviously lacked the power to take it from him by force. I am. Jesus says, I am he. And yet again, in John's Gospel, I think there's eight different times where Jesus defines himself as the I am. That very name that God gave to Moses Moses asks, who are you? When, I, when they say, who sent you? Who should I say sent me? And this is the name that God gave for himself in, the, in Exodus 3.14. He says, I am who I am. That, trust me, this is an unmistakable statement of divinity that would have been obvious to any of the Hebrews. Friends, there is power in the name of Jesus. Hey! <laughs> Okay, on to my third section. Peter's, Peter's passion, verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the, the high priest's servant. Let's say that again. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Man, you just got to love Peter. Love Peter. He's passionate. He's reactionary. He's impulsive. Maybe, you know, you got to remember, it wasn't that long ago, they were all in the upper room together, and Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me, right? Maybe Peter is, and this is after Peter said, I'd give my life for you. He said, yeah, but you're going to deny me three times tonight. Maybe Peter's trying to prove to everyone, all his disciple friends, that, you know, yeah, yes, indeed. I will, I will die for Jesus. we got 600 men here. i got my sword. All right, let's go. I am Spartacus. I don't know, right? <laughs> that he wouldn't deny him. And so he pulls out his sword, cuts off the guy's ear. Knowing Peter is probably aiming for the guy's head and missed, right? <laughs> Luke tells us the other part of the story where Jesus heals the servants here. Now, Peter's got zeal. He's got truckloads of zeal. But zeal needs to be tempered with wisdom. What I love about young Christians, what I love about people who are new to the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life, they got passion and zeal. They got more passion and zeal than they know how to do. It oozes out of them, leaks out of them all over the place. Sometimes it's messy. But I love zeal and passion. I'm a huge proponent, a huge fan of passion. I mean, I tattooed it on my arm. That means passion. You gotta like passion a lot if you're gonna actually ink it to your body. But with it, wisdom is absolutely required. Guys, we need much more passion in the church. There must be passion between the bridegroom and the bride. Why would God refer to himself as the bridegroom and why would he call us his bride if it was supposed to be a passionless? relationship he calls himself the bridegroom and us the bride because it's a passionate 
relationship. All too often, the church has rejected passion in the name of order or cultural preferences. And um, they've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. What I'd rather do is find people who have passion and then give wisdom to them. I used to be the passionate one. I was, I was the one who couldn't be contained. I'm fire for God. And God, in his great mercy and love for me and other people, sent men and women into my life who had wisdom. And they were able to add wisdom to my passion and zeal. I, I was the better for it. Absolutely. And so now I'm the older one. And so I can recognize passion. And what I want to do is to be the one who has the wisdom to pour into their passion. What I don't want to do is put out their fire. We need their fire. What I want to do is add wisdom to their fire. I've used this analogy before. We want fire. We want fire in the fire. How many of you guys have fireplaces or, or stoves in your house to help heat the house in winter, right? The fire in that stove, in that fireplace, benefits your whole house, right? You want fire. If you can't make fire, then your house is going to be cold. We want fire in the house, but we want it in the fireplace. You take those same burning logs or coals and put them on the living room rug, what happens? The whole house is going to burn down, right? So we want fire. We just want it in the fireplace. We don't want to be without fire, because then we freeze to death. And that's not what we want. We want fire in the fireplace. Final thought. Love, I completely believe this, that love is self-limiting for the sake of another. Jesus is the ultimate example of it, and we see it here. To yield when it is within your power to strike and, and win, to yield when it's in your power to not only strike, but to devastate the other side, that's, that's a demonstration of love in, at the highest order. That's extravagant love. Jesus, Jesus knew. He's our example of what it means to love in a self-limiting way. He could have just kept saying, I am devastated that army. He could have called down fire from heaven. He could have called down a legion of angels who would have come and wiped them out. But that's not why he came. What did he do instead? He limited himself. First he limited himself by taking on human flesh, the word becoming flesh, and in the incarnation and coming and living among us. That was limiting enough. Then he yields himself, even though he has the power not to. That's extravagant love. So I want you to know today that the gospel is good news. It's extraordinarily good news. And the scriptures tell us that our God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great and a lavish love. We have a picture of that here today in John chapter 18. I'm going to have the worship team come on back up. Let's do one more song. And after that song, if you guys are just kind of staying in place, we'll do our family meeting. Let us then get ready. Let's pray. Oh, God. Oh, God, help us. Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends today. Would you take the blinders from our eyes and help us to see you for who you really are? Help us to see you, Lord, in all your mercy and in all your kindness and in all your love. But Lord, could we see you in all of your power, in all your glory, 
in all your majesty. Lord, we need you to be bigger in our hearts and in our minds. Would you do that, Lord, please? Help us, Lord. Help us to know the power of your love. Make us a people who know the power of your name. And Lord, let the power of your presence continually fall on all of us. In Jesus' name. Amen? Let's stand and sing a final song.